Good morning, church. All right, so today's reading is Ezra 45, 1 through, sorry, whoa, Isaiah, sorry. Isaiah 45, 1 through 13. You didn't even say anything, Frank. All right. (laughs) Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other beside me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, in, or to a woman with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you, Emily. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. Uh, The Lord creates both calm and calamity. That's a great line in that poem. Uh, If you're new here, uh, I'm glad that you're here. Welcome. My name is Frank. I'm one of the uh, pastors here at Redemption Arcadia. We have been going through... Uh, Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. I'm going to say this again later, but if you don't already, would you please have your Bible out or your phone out turned to Isaiah chapter 45? You're going to need your Bible this morning because we're going to go over three chapters in our in our series uh, today. But before we get there, a couple of the announcements. First of all, it's just a kind of a personal thing. I'm I'm down here during that last song, looking up at the at the platform, and I think there's eight musicians up here, and I'm looking, and I'm like, there's just something not right. Something is not right. And then it, it, then it suddenly dawned on me, um, Pastor Tyler, who was at the keyboard, he was in a short sleeve, bright yellow and white, summery shirt. <laughs> it just wasn't right. So I'll be talking to him later today. Um, <clears throat> Fashion faux pas. Uh, Here's a serious announcement, though. Uh, This coming week, on Wednesday night, we resume and finish our Wednesday night uh, series on spiritual gifts. And then 
uh, March 8th, 15th, and 22nd, on Wednesday night from 6.30 to 8 o'clock, we're going to have a membership class. We do this two or three times a year so that people can come in and learn much more deeply about Redemption Church in general, Redemption Arizona, we have 10 congregations, and then Redemption Church Arcadia in particular. We go over the history, we go over how it works, and then the last night that we're together, <clears throat> you can ask any questions that you want about our statement of faith or about uh, how things work or about the pastors, whatever, whatever it is that you want to ask. Uh, it is from 6.30 until 8 o'clock every Wednesday night here in uh, the sanctuary, we will provide, on those nights, we will provide dinner and childcare for you to be able to come. You need to RSVP so we know uh, how much dinner to have and, and, uh, and how much childcare we, uh, we will need for those nights. But please, RSVP. And then, we normally do something every Wednesday night, but the next two Wednesday nights, so uh, March 29th and then whatever it is, I think April 5th, uh, it is, we're going to take those nights off as we, as we head into Easter and then starting the Wednesday after Easter, we're going to do a five-week series on Wednesday nights from 7 to uh, 8 o'clock uh, on Wednesday nights. Uh, and, it's, and it's called uh, A League of Their Own, and then colon, Five Important Women in the Bible. So, and this, we're going to do something a little bit si- different for this series, and I think it's going to be not just a lot of fun, but I think it's going to be really uh, a revealing time for us as well. And by the way... All of the women that we're going to talk about are in the Old Testament, so that'll give you a little hint. Some of you are going, well, let's see, Esther and Ruth, and then who else? Okay, probably Jezebel. Nope, not Jezebel. Okay, these are good women, all right? (laughs) So anyway, that's what we're going to do starting after uh, Easter. I think that's it, so let's dive into our series. Um, Please have your Bibles open. See, I said I was going to say it again. To uh, chapter 45, verses 1 through 13, that's the first... Uh, bit that we're going to look at. But before we get there, I want to review where we are in the series and then preview a little bit for us what we're going to talk about this morning. So for centuries, God's people, Israel, had been in rebellion. They had been worshiping false gods. That's called idolatry when you worship a false god. When you worship and serve something, whether you know you're doing it or not, that you believe is going to fulfill you in a way that only God can fulfill you. Uh, It's an existential need that we all have, but you think that something of this world is going to be able to fill that existential need. That's called idolatry when we do that. It's not that these things are bad. It's not that we don't need these things. But when we put them in a position of preeminence and priority and superiority in our life over and above God, it becomes idol worship or worshiping false gods. And God's people... Even though they had been called and God had demonstrated his power and his love and his compassion for his people for centuries, continued to turn away from him and worship false gods. That's rebellion. That's idolatry. And even when God would call them, call them back to him, and even when God would demonstrate his sovereignty, his power, and his authority, and demonstrate his compassion, they, in their stubbornness, and we'll talk a lot more about that next week, They, in their stubbornness, refused to turn back to him. This had been going on for centuries and centuries. And even uh, God had already warned the people that Isaiah is speaking to uh, earlier because in 722 B.C., when God's people Israel were split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah, uh, in 722, God called for the Assyrians to come in and sack the northern kingdom, take them all captive and take them 
uh, and intermarry them and take some of them away. He had already done that. And then God stopped the Assyrians from going into the southern kingdom. They could have overrun the southern kingdom very easily. But God stopped them as a warning to the southern kingdom. He's like, I want to save half my people. Maybe they'll see what I did to the northern kingdom and they'll finally turn back to me. And they did. They turned back to him for about five minutes. And then they started doing their thing again. And so now Isaiah comes along and he starts warning them about how God is going to discipline them again through the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians are going to come from the east and they're going to come in and they're going to take the southern kingdom. So he's warning them about the Babylonian exile. Then Isaiah gets to chapter 40, and from 40 through chapter 55, these are the 16 chapters we're looking at in this series, this nine-week series. Uh, uh, Isaiah then says, all right, you're going to be in exile. I'm telling you that's going to happen. But I'm also telling you in these 16 chapters that after the exile, you're going to be rescued. You're going to be saved. You're going to be redeemed. You're going to be restored. You're going to get to move back to Jerusalem and rebuild Jerusalem. So the restoration is coming. But then also in these chapters, these 16 chapters, there is a tremendous emphasis that looks even beyond that rescue to the time when a a Messiah, a Savior, a suffering servant will come. And so these chapters also look forward to the coming of Jesus. So at the time that Isaiah is writing this, Jesus is still 650 years away, and yet Isaiah is looking forward to that. And eventually we'll get there in, uh, in a very specific way. We've already seen allusions to it, but a very specific way in chapters 52 and 53. So I've mentioned this before. Isaiah has really four levels of history going on in his long book of prophecy. He, he talks about and refers to the Assyrian invasion in 722. He then predicts that the Babylonians are coming in 605, 597, and 586 B.C. to take and carry off the Jews from Jerusalem into Babylon, 700 miles to the east. Then he talks about how in 539 B.C., God is going to rescue them by the hand of Cyrus, the king of Persia. And then he looks ahead to Jesus. So Isaiah is covering centuries worth of God's work in this one prophetic book. And one of the things we need to remember about God, and we see this constantly in these 16 chapters. Last week, Tyler James talked about how there's like this spiritual whiplash that goes on in these chapters. God is confronting his people in their sin, and he's saying, you, 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 you can't do this. You're stubborn, and, you're, and you're, you're, you're false God worshipers. You're committing adultery against me. When you worship a false God, that's like committing adultery against God. And so he calls it adultery. He calls them out on all their sins. He confronts them. But then one verse later, he starts to comfort them. I'm your savior. I'm your salvation. I'm the one who created Uh, The heavens and the earth, I'm the one with the power to be able to fix this. As bleak as it looks, I'm the one who will take care of you, redeem you, and restore you. So God is a God who confronts us and he comforts us. We need to understand that. I have never understood the person who only wants a God of comfort. Well, if all you need is comfort, what, what is there to confront If he's just a God of comfort, what is there to confront? It's like, I only like the Jesus that loves me for who I am. Well, what do we need redemption for then? If if everything is just fine and dandy, there are problems that we have going all the way back to Genesis 3. We'll talk a little bit about that today as well. And so we need salvation. We need comfort. We need hope. We need hope that things are going to be made right. And the reason God is a God who both confronts and comforts is because he's a God of covenant. 
He is not a God of transaction. He's not saying, if you do this, I will restore you. I will save you. Instead, he comes and he says, I've made a covenant with you. He told Abraham back in Genesis, he said, I am going to be your God and you are going to be my people. He made a covenant with Abraham, with his people. And so no matter what, yes, it means he's going to discipline his people when they need discipline, but he's also going to comfort them and rescue them. That's who Jesus is for those of us who know him. That's who Jesus is for us. He's a God of covenant. And and then lastly, we have been already introduced to this guy Cyrus, but you heard in Emily's reading today in chapter uh, 45, verse 1, he is named by name. He is God's instrument of redemption for his people who are going to be in exile in Babylon, and we're going to talk a lot more about that today, the demise of the Babylonian Empire. So three key ideas for this passage today. Number one, we need to remember that God initiates and we respond. Now, we don't really like that. Because we want to be the initiators and have God respond. But then that kind of makes us God and him our servant. We worship him. We serve him. He is the initiator and we respond. If that's not true, then he's really not God. Our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, uh, used to say this all the time. Once we understand who we really are, only then will we understand who God really is. In other words, once we understand that we are the responders, not the initiators, then we can fully understand who God is in his sovereignty, his authority, and his power. Here's the second thing. We're going to see a bunch of New Testament thoughts and principles in these chapters, and I'm going to take some time uh, to, to point out a couple of those. And again, I just want to say this. I say this a lot because it's true and it has helped me in my walk with Jesus. The more you read and study and understand the Old Testament, which I know can be challenging at times, but the more you stay in the, you, you spend time in the Old Testament, the better you will understand what's going on in the New Testament. Because there's always this reference back to what the Hebrew Bible says, the Old Testament. Uh, when Paul writes, he's almost always writing through this framework of what those first 39 books in the Bible say. And then he writes um, uh, half of the, or, or a third of the New Testament through that lens. So understanding the Old Testament will really help your understanding and appreciation of the New Testament. And then number three, we need to remember that because God is sovereign, he can do his work any way he wants to and when he wants to, which I know, frankly, annoys us. Uh, Jeremiah, in his book, he says, the word of the Lord always comes under condemnation from humans. We are so quick to let God know that he's not doing it right and that we have a better way. So here's the challenge today. Again, please have your Bibles out. We're going to cover three chapters today. So there's going to be a lot of summarizing, but there will be areas in which we will press into. So those first 13 verses that Emily um, read for us. Verse 1, so who is Cyrus and why is God speaking to him and about him? He's also known as Cyrus the Great. He was the king of Persia, so let me explain that. Um, You have Jerusalem, and then 700 miles to the east is ancient Babylon, and that's where the Jews have been carried off, or will be carried off into uh, exile. Babylon is in present-day Iraq, and in fact, Babylon and Baghdad are very close uh, to, would would be considered geographically very close to each other. Um, So... Uh, uh, Cyrus is the king of Persia. Persia is the next nation over. So Persia is modern-day Iraq, and so it's even further east. But at the time, Babylon is the superpower in the world, and they are undefeatable, impenetrable, invincible. They are convinced 
By the way, has there ever been a superpower that wasn't eventually humbled in their superpowerness? Yeah, I know that makes people nervous. I get that, okay? But Cyrus the Great, king of Persia from 559 B.C. to 530 B.C., the exile ended, um, believe it or not, on October 31st, 539. It wasn't Halloween night. They didn't have Halloween yet. But there was a big party that you can read about on that night in Babylon in Daniel chapter 5. So you can read about all of this happening. Anyway, Cyrus was God's chosen instrument. He was, his, he was God's anointed chosen instrument for his good and righteous purpose, which was to defeat the undefeatable Babylonians in October of 539, thus liberating the Jews out of their 70 years of exile. Now, we often speak of the Babylonian exile, and this is how it ended. Cyrus defeated the Babylonians and their impenetrable wall. The Babylonians uh, had built a city around, ba- uh, built a wall around the city of Babylon that was considered one of the great wonders of the world. It was so wide on the top that you could race chariots four abreast across all the way around. It was nine miles around, and it was the equivalent of about uh, eight or nine stories uh, high-rise uh, tall. It was absolutely impenetrable. There was no siege machine that could come against it. You couldn't attack the city of Babylon. Babylon was going to be there for eternity. Here's the problem. The Euphrates River, they built Babylon on the Euphrates River, and so the Euphrates River ran under the wall into the city. So here's what Cyrus did. He got together all the engineers, and they rerouted the Euphrates River. It's so simple when you think about it, but nobody had thought about it, thought of it before, but that's what he does. And so then it dries up and they just, they just snuck in under the wall. They didn't need a siege machine. They didn't need anything. And that's how they conquered Babylon. Okay? So we talk about that. They just marched in. It was brilliant. And so then the question becomes, these 13 verses that start chapter 45, are they prophetically declaring that day in 539 BC when the Persians took Babylon? And the answer is yes. Again, read Daniel chapter 5. And if we look at verse 13, in the context of verse 1, bookended, you see that this notion is affirmed. So a little bit of information about Babylon. Babylon was super wealthy, super rich. And as a result, they had this incredible military power and incredible national defenses, including their wall. They were thought to be invulnerable. So the Babylonians thought they had it made in the shade. But when God comes a-calling, when God comes a-calling, things change. Also, this is typical in ancient rhetoric. The theme of chapter 45 is the sovereignty of God. The first 13 verses are a demonstration of God's sovereignty, specifically through how he directs his chosen instrument, Cyrus. And then verses 14 through 25 are a general proclamation by God First to his people Israel, and then later to all the nations, to all people, that God is sovereign. And the challenge for us is that so many people see God's sovereignty as a problem to be managed rather than a blessing to receive. So many of us see God's sovereignty as a problem that we need to manage, that we need to figure out how to get around it, we need to figure out how to manipulate it rather than a blessing to be enjoyed. Now, of course, trying to manage God's sovereignty is a fool's errand, but we're so sure. Here you go. I'll personalize this so that you're not indicted on this. I'm so sure. I'm so sure my wisdom is better than God's. I'm so sure my way, my plan, my ideas are much better than God's. After all, I'm living in this milieu here. I'm the one living in this context. I know everything that's going on. He's just up there watching, and he keeps getting distracted by all you all. 
I know what's going on in my life. I'm so much better at this than God is. We're so obsessed. I'm so obsessed with that that I miss the blessing of freedom that I receive when I'm allowed to, to have God be God and just submit to his will. There's freedom in that. That's not what we do. And it's not that we do nothing. We need to remember this. This is not a call to be passive or apathetic. It's just simply that we submit to his plan and we work his will and his plan. Uh, verses 4 and 5 have some interesting uh, similar sayings that God is saying to Cyrus too. He says, I name you though you do not know me. In other words, God is in charge of you even if you have no interest in him. God and I have this agreement. He does his thing, I do my thing, and he doesn't bother me. Eh, eventually, you're going to be bothered. Eventually, you're going to be a part of his plan one way or another. God is in charge of you even if you have no interest in him. For instance, Cyrus was not a worshiper of God. He did not know Yahweh. Yet God used him even though he had no idea that's what was ha- He had no idea that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, was using him. He just thought he was conquering another nation. And verse 5 says something similar. God says, I equip you, Cyrus, though you do not know me. Cyrus, of course, thought that his great military prowess was all of his own talents and smarts including his idea to simply reroute the Euphrates, but it was the Lord who equipped him for all of this. But also more generally, have you ever noticed just generally how God usually gets blamed for all the bad stuff that happens and then he never gets any of the credit for the good stuff that happens? Sometimes I just wonder if if God gets a little annoyed with that. I I get all the blame, none of the credit. Okay, In verse 7, is, is God saying, again, you need to understand, I am sovereign. God either causes or allows all things to happen. There is no maverick molecule in this universe. If that's not true, he's not God. And again in verse 8, God's sovereignty is not a problem for us to try to manage, but rather a blessing we should receive with joy. And then verse 9, here's one of these New Testament references. If you read uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, this verse 9 should sound really familiar to you. Again, Paul writes so much of what he writes through this lens of his Old Testament knowledge. Here's what he writes in Romans 9. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So again, a a summary of chapter 45 is uh, that the sovereignty of God that calls and directs Cyrus to attack the unattackable Babylon and win. Those are verses 1 through 13. He is also the same God who is the only savior of humanity. And that's verses 14 through 25. 14 through 19 are God speaking specifically to Israel about his sovereignty and about how he's a savior. And there's a ton of uh, Genesis uh, chapter 1 language there that he created everything. He's a God of order. He made perfection. He will make it perfect again someday. And then verses 20 through 25 is an appeal to all mankind about the sovereignty of God and the fact that he is the savior of all mankind if we would just acknowledge him. And I love how verses 20 through 25 show that God has a heart for all people. He wants the nations to know him. It always reminds me of Revelation. This is after Jesus has come now, and he's brought the new Jerusalem with him, and he's restored uh, the earth uh, to its uh, 
Garden of Eden-like perfection before the fall in Genesis 3. And and Jesus says this to John. Then the angel showed me the uh, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, the new Jerusalem, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. He doesn't say for the healing of his people. He says for the healing of the nations. He's saying, come to me even if you're not Jewish. Come to me through Jesus Christ who is Lord. Who also ministered to Gentiles, non-Jews. Because so many of the Jews were rejecting him. So God has a heart not just for his People, his chosen people, Israel, but for anybody who comes to him through Jesus Christ. And then I want to just press into verse 18 in chapter 45. Let me read it for you. There it is. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. You can read about that in Genesis 1. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. You see, God is a God of order. God is a God of order. He created a world and a universe of order. That's what we see in Genesis 1 and 2, and everything's fine and wonderful and perfect and transparent and intimate and vulnerable. And then Genesis 3 comes. And and Adam and Eve rebel against God. And this is what's known as the fall. And it's original sin. And I know some people hear original sin and you're like, oh, that myth? No, this is why we live in a world that's so filled with trouble and madness and suffering. It's Genesis chapter 3. Again, I've said this so many times, even specifically about Genesis 1, 2, and 3. If you want to understand the rest of the Bible, you need to understand what happened in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. How can you, how can you look at the end of Genesis chapter 2 and see everything is perfect, and then skip over to chapter 4 and read about two brothers murdering each other? And not go, what happened? I feel like I missed something. I just walked out of the room to grab a beer, and what, I don't understand. You know? That's why you have commercials on TV, so you can go to the refrigerator, all right? So we need to remember that God is a God of order, and sin has disordered everything. It's disordered our relationship with God. It's disordered our relationship with each other. It's di- How many of you have perfect relationships with every last person you know? Raise your hand real high, okay? All right? It's disordered our relationship with ourselves, and it's disordered our relationship with creation. Everything is corrupt. By original sin. He wants there to be order. And because he's a God of order, his authority allows for him to manage his restoration of his people any way he wants. Either through Cyrus, the king of Persia, or through Jesus, his son, on the cross and through the resurrection. He can do that any way he wants. So, here you go. I want you to understand this now. He can do this through Cyrus. I hope you understand that other than maybe in some parts of Persia... Everybody in the world at this time viewed Cyrus in a very negative light. Because he's running around conquering nations. He's, he's making life miserable 
for all the nations around. He's going to make life miserable for the Babylonians, even as he's liberating the Jews. He's going to make life miserable for the Babylonians. People didn't have a high opinion of of Cyrus. So I, I want you to hear this. In that time, in the 6th century BC, people would look at Cyrus and they saw him the same way some of you see Donald Trump. Also, in the 6th century BC, people would look at Cyrus and they would look at him in the same way that some of the rest of you see Joe Biden. There's not one happy face in this room right now. So what I'm saying is that God can even use Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Now I've really lost every last one of you. (laughs) If he can't do that, he's not God. He used Nebuchadnezzar. He used Cyrus. He used Trump, Biden, whatever. Now, rather than getting all upset about that, that should be some form of liberation for us. Yes, we can criticize the policies of both. Knock yourself out. But good grief, if you think you can have any control over that. God is God. We are not. And neither is Donald or Joe. We need to remember that. And lastly, in chapter 45, look at verse 23. That is repeated in Philippians chapter 2. And it's a great passage, so of course I have to read it. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of, your, uh, of others. And then he says, this is how you do it. Have the same mind in you that is yours in Christ Jesus. Look at the world through the lens of Jesus' eyes. Jesus' is mind, not yours. And then he says, and this is how Jesus saw the world. He says, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Imagine that. He's God. Jesus is God. And yet he didn't think, counting, uh, he didn't think to count uh, equality with God as something to be grasped. We're running around all the time trying to be equal to God or better than God. And yet even Jesus is saying, nope, I have a mission and I'm going to submit. Okay. He did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The author Paul Miller calls that the J-curve, descending into greatness. And that's what Jesus calls us to as well. We descend with him, and we submit to him, and he lifts us up. He exalts us. So chapter 45 helps us to understand that even though Babylon crushed Jerusalem and appears invincible, Cyrus and the Persians, by God's power and direction, will show how temporal Babylon's power is. And then chapter 46 explains that just as Babylon's military prowess leaves much to be desired, so too the gods they worship are nothing of any benefit to pay attention to. Now remember, Babylon was super wealthy, super rich, and so they have excellent idols, the best idols, the best false gods. And they have an excellent military, which was also a false god of theirs. 
Again, they thought, it, they, they thought they had it made in the shade. Furthermore, it would be tempting for the Jews in exile to also think that the gods of Babylon were better than Yahweh, their own God, because uh, Babylon just destroyed Jerusalem and carried them off into exile. So Babylon's gods must be better than Yahweh. But in chapter 46, God reassures his people that this is not the case. Look at verses 4 through, I'm sorry, 1 through 4. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Who are Bel and Nebo? I'll explain. Their idols are beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnants of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he. And to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and I will save. Bel and Nebo are the most, two most prominent gods in Babylon, the gods that they worshipped in Babylon. So they would bow down and worship them. But here, now, in the wake of being conquered by Persia, these gods, Bel and Nebo, become a burden to the Babylonian people. How, how many of you have had something in this world that you've decided is, is just magnificent and you've served it and in a sense you've worshipped it and you've given your life to it and you, you, you felt like it was going to fulfill you in a way that only God can fulfill you and then later on you discover that it's become a burden to you. It's become a weight to you. God describes it as, as it's, like, it's like a weight being thrown around a drowning person. I'm drowning, I'm drowning. Well, here's a 25-pound weight. Good luck. That's what these false gods become. And the reason is because God is the one true God, and no god or idol can match him. Several weeks ago, I interviewed Josh Swift up here, and I remember he said, death is the great equalizer. I thought it was Denzel Washington, but apparently it's death. (laughs) But death is the great equalizer. And I pray that we are attuned to the one true God when that equalizer equalizes us. And then verses 5 through 10, let me read those. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? That's a rhetorical question and the answer would be no one, nothing. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship it. They lift it on their shoulders and they carry it and they set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. It cannot move from its place. This God that they worship cannot even move. If no one cries, it does not answer or save him from trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end uh, from the beginning... And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. So that gold, so people, ancient people would take their gold, they'd collect gold and silver and then they'd take it to a smith and he'd form it into a little statue or a votive and then they'd take it home and they'd put it on a table and they would worship it. That's our God. But the God can't move, it's, it's inanimate, it can't speak back. So who's controlling the God? The God or the people. See, that's why we like false gods. We think we have control over them. It makes us God. 
That's the, that's the point of every false god. You get to think that you're God, or at least try to act like it. But you're really not, and that's why it doesn't work out very well. Um, do we have any people, I'm, there must be one or two, anybody ever yell at the TV? <laughs> and I'm not talking about when it's broken. I'm talking about when you're watching cable news, and you're yelling, I purged myself of those demons years ago. But you're watching cable news, and you're yelling at whoever's on the TV. Or, or, or here you go, this will connect with some of you. You're, you're watching a game, and, and one, one of the athletes from your team makes a silly decision, and you yell at the TV. Or an umpire, or, or a referee makes a bad call, and you're yelling at the TV. How many times did somebody on the TV actually change their mind or answer you? Did it ever affect the outcome of any game when you were yelling at the TV? And let me tell you something. Just ask Jackie. I have a PhD in TV yelling. Nothing ever changes. See, the the, the TV is like a false god. That doesn't do anything for us. Okay. And then finally, in chapter 47, and some of you, yes, finally, chapter 47... We return to how humiliating this defeat by the Persians and Cyrus will be for Babylon. It's going to be humiliating, and God's word says that, but the point is not the humiliation. That's not the point. Rather, the point is the power and the authority and the sovereignty of God. Uh, Let me say this. One of the things I found about people who only read in the New Testament, and then in the New Testament, they're very selective. They only read the parts about how kind and generous Jesus is. Those people lose the reality of God's power, authority, and sovereignty, and they lose the reality of God's genuine hatred for sin, which then makes them and us vulnerable and susceptible to heresy, to false teaching. People say all the time, I like Jesus, but I don't like that God of the Old Testament, as if they are different gods. They are not. Same God. So people constantly cherry-pick New Testament verses and passages so they can manipulate into Jesus into a God who always agrees with them. A Jesus who always agrees with them. Let me tell you something about Jesus. Read your entire New Testament because Jesus confronts the corruption and hypocrisy of the professional religious people in the same way that the Lord of the Old Testament confronts his people Israel with their idolatry, complacency, and immorality. Jesus also thrashes and trashes the exploitation and fraud in the temple marketplace. That's the temple marketplace, not the Tempe marketplace. In the temple marketplace, the same way that the Lord thrashes and trashes Jerusalem with the Babylonians when it was time for that discipline to happen. It's the same God, and God is sovereign. He's all-powerful, He's the final authority, no matter which testament you're reading. And Babylon had no idea that their power and authority were no match for God. They were so caught up in their own hubris and arrogance. And again, read Daniel chapter 5, and you'll see how that hubris in Daniel chapter 5 led to a complacency that destroyed Babylon. So, 47, 1 through 3. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon, and sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. Babylon, Chaldeans, same people. 
For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour, put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. Those are all symbols of, of grief, sorrow, humiliation, and poverty. All of that, those are symbols of, of just utter destruction. You see, God is the ultimate judge, not a powerful nation, not you or me. There's this story uh, that uh, is told about Eugene Peterson. Some of you know who he, he was, a great pastor and author. And uh, towards, uh, in his older uh, years, I guess he was probably in his 70s when this happened. His daughter was kind of managing everything for him. And so Bono, who's heard of Bono? Am I saying his name right? Bono, U2, okay, changing the world, all that stuff. Anyway, I, by the way, I'm reading his, um, his memoir right now. It's called Surrender. Very interesting. But anyway, Bono calls, and his daughter, Eugene Peterson's daughter, answers the phone. Bono says, I want to come and see Eugene Peterson. I want to meet with him. I want to talk with him. So she's like, oh, Bono. So she runs in and tells Eugene, Bono, he wants to come and see you. Can Bono come see you? Can we make time for Bono? And, Bono? What? She said, you know, you too, changing the world, all that stuff. You know, I said, I guess next month would be okay. No, Dad, it's Bono. You don't understand, it's Bono. He wants to come. And he walks over his Bible and he picks up, he says, it's Isaiah. Now, why Isaiah? The reason is because Isaiah points to who God really is. He met with Bono. He did. He met with him. But he wasn't going to get it swept up in this idea that Bono was somehow more important or better than God. He was keeping Bono in perspective. Bono can be a false god too. I've seen it. Okay? He's great. I admit it. But he's not God. We need to remember that. Verses 8 and 9. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart... I am, and there is no one besides me. I sit not as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. And they did. One day, in in, uh, October 539, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. The same idea as the last... uh, I'm sorry, this was a common theme in the Bible... Verses 8 and 9, uh, those who are rebelling against God think that God has no idea and that he's not going to do anything about it. And God doesn't notice. He doesn't know what I'm doing. Nope, he's, he's on it, but he's going to do it in his time and in his way. We're not going to escape the scrutiny of God. We may feel like it. We may feel like he has no idea, but he's God. He's got a handle on everything, and he scrutinizes everything. And then the last two verses we'll look at today, 10 and 11. You feel secure... In your wickedness, you said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there's no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. I love that line. Evil is going to come on you, a type of which you don't know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin will come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. 
It's the same idea as the last two verses. He's again speaking of the Babylonians, thinking they had it made in the shade. Only he's more on the nose here. Don't get too comfortable in your rebellion against God. He sees and there will be a day of reckoning. At some point, all of us have to put away our justifications, our rationalizations, and our own wisdom, and we're going to square up with God. And the question is, are we going to submit? And I know, uh, at, at Preaching Collective a couple weeks ago, Aaron Daly, the pastor of Alhambra, we were talking about the importance of submitting to God, and he said, the problem is, is that submit is a cuss word in today's culture. The minute you say that, people just turn off. You know? But we're all going to have that moment. Uh, Consider this accurate assessment from a New Testament scholar. People do not drift toward holiness. We don't drift toward holiness. How many of you have ever drifted toward a sculpted L.A. fitness body? (laughs) On the couch doing my reps, I'm up to eight hours. Looking good. It's the same thing with holiness. It's the same thing with God. You don't just drift that way. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. See, we need God. We need Jesus, and we need to be purposeful about that. We desperately need what Jesus did for us on the cross and through the resurrection. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus represents everything that we've talked about here today. The authority of God, the sovereignty of God, the compassion of God, the power of God, the victory of God, the justice of God, the discipline of God, and the hope of God. I've said it many times before, I'll keep saying it. We humans, we play finite games. We play temporal games. But Jesus plays an infinite game. He plays the eternal game. Here's another way to put it from Joshua Seth. We play checkers, but Jesus plays chess. There is none like our God. There's none like Jesus. Amen. Our gracious and holy God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you for how we can learn so much today, right now, from all of this that happens in Isaiah. This history, but more importantly than the history, uh, the demonstration of your sovereignty. So God, help us to submit to that. Help us to understand that. Help us to know that you are God. And let everything else fall into place of its own accord, the right accord. God, we love you. We praise you for what you've done for us in Jesus. We thank you for your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to enter our time of reflection and response. uh, Our time of taking communion. If our communion servers would please come forward. Again, on the night that Jesus was betrayed... He picks up the bread. He gives thanks. He's giving thanks about, for, about, for, for what is about to happen to him. And he breaks the bread. He says, this is my body and it's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after they'd eaten the bread, he picked up the cup and he said, this cup is filled with the, 
the new covenant in my blood. It's poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. It's my blood that's going to be poured out. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we come to this meal every time that we gather to not only confess that we need Jesus, but to celebrate we have him. And during this time, we'll also have people standing in the wings. If you're looking for uh, somebody to answer some questions or to pray with you, we'll also have that as well.
Yes, I'm going to read um, one thing from Fort, uh, Isaiah 46 that we didn't get to go over, but I think it's in line and a good thing to be meditating on as we go into the week, um, that as we struggle well and as we are um, being tempted and to go back into the yawn of what we talked about last week with Tyler James, the yawn. Um, an app of apathy instead of that to respond in submission and to be reminded of how God works. Let me read this over us. Um, this is Isaiah 46, 12, and it says this, listen to me, you stubborn of heart. I don't know about you, but that's, that's me. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. For us, God's people. Amen. Let us go into the week remembering that. Let's hold fast to this word. Let's go live all of life all for Jesus. We'll see you next week. We love you guys.